Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Bookshop Podcast. I'm Mandy Jackson-Beverly. Join me as I speak with authors and other guests who specialize in subjects dear to my heart, the humanities and our environment. To help the show reach more people, please consider sharing with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You're listening to episode 151. Fiona Barton is the New York Times bestselling author of The Widow, The Child, and The Suspect. She has trained and worked with journalists all over the world, and previously she was a senior writer at the Daily Mail, news editor at the Daily Telegraph, and chief reporter at the Mail on Sunday, where she won Reporter of the Year at the British Press Awards. Fiona lives in England, and her latest novel, Local Gone Missing, is about Detective Elsie King and her investigation into a man's disappearance in a seaside town where the locals and weekenders are at odds. Hi, Fiona, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. My pleasure. Before we start talking about your new book, Local Gone Missing, I want to learn more about you. As I mentioned in the introduction, you've spent most of your life as a journalist. What inspired you and your husband to give up your jobs, apply to voluntary services overseas, and then later accept a two-year placement in Colombo, Sri Lanka? Well, uh, <laughs> we both, you know, worked all our adult lives. Um, I'd done 30-something years as a journalist, and we'd talked about volunteering, doing voluntary work when we retired. But we got to our 50s and thought, why are we waiting? Um, we had that kind of slim window of opportunity. Our kids were old enough for us to leave. They were adults and uh, our parents weren't so old that they needed care. So we thought, let's do it. And it was um, a slight moment of madness, I think. Half our friends thought we were crazy and half said, wow, I'd like to do that too. So anyway, we applied and we were offered Sri Lanka, a place we'd never been. And for me, it was to work with journalists who are under threat. So, yeah, I mean, I jumped at it. BSO hadn't placed any journalists in country because it was so dangerous. It's I'm not sure whether it still is, but it certainly was the lowest democratic country on the um, safety for journalists scale. So when I got there, journalists were being murdered, um, being tortured, abducted uh, with impunity. No one has ever been brought to trial, arrested for doing it. I think mainly because it was the government who was doing it. But um, so it was quite a challenge and I had to be very careful. I wasn't there as a journalist. No one knew that I was. Um, but um, yeah, it was so inspiring, you know, to work with uh, people who were risking their lives to write the news and um, to tell people what was going on. And it's very humbling. Um, we're so lucky in the States, in the West, that we have a free press. We grumble and we abuse it sometimes, but we are so lucky. You know, the countries and the journalists I've worked with since going to Sri Lanka have shown me, you know, the real value of journalism and what it's for. So, yeah, it has. It's been a huge experience. And what year were you over there? 
Uh, we went in 2008, September 2008. So the Civil War was still on. Uh, that finished, I think it was May 2009, when um, it all came to a, a terribly bloody end. So, yeah, while we were there to begin with, there, were, we, there was a, an air raid one night and um, we didn't know. Uh, we thought somebody was doing some building work <laughs> in the house next door. But, yeah, there were car bombs and um, military everywhere, armed soldiers. So it was uh, quite limiting to begin with. But gradually, after the war, after they'd interned, gosh, I think it was about 400,000 Tamil IDPs, I was allowed to travel a bit more. So I did then manage to get up to Jaffna. I went to Trincomalee and Batakaloa and, you know, other areas where I could see what was happening. The thought of individuals or government organisations ordering the torture and often execution of journalists, people who are doing their jobs, searching for truth, is just mind-boggling. It's unfathomable. Absolutely. I was listening to a story on NPR the other day about attacks on journalists in Cuba. It's tragic to think that in 2022, journalists are being brutally attacked for reporting the news. I mean, it's it's all over the world. You know, you, you look at, you know, reporters without frontiers there. They do, you know, safety for journalists report every year. And it's uh, mind blowing, to be honest. Uh, I think Mexico is still the worst place in the world to be a journalist. But um, yeah, everywhere. And it's got no better, really, for the Sri Lankans. Uh, they've just sort of lurched to another crisis now. But uh, yeah. Yeah, it's unsettling to say the least. And after your time in Sri Lanka, you and your husband moved to southwest France. What brought on that decision and how did this move change your lifestyle? Well, <laughs> after Sri Lanka kind of changed everything because um, we were living um, very uh, quietly. It wasn't that quiet, really, but there we are. It never is in Southeast Asia, is it? But uh, we were living very simply. We lived in a the ground floor of a family house uh, in Colombo, the lovely family um, who rented out their ground floor to us. Um, and, you know, we didn't have hot water. We didn't have AC. We washed clothes under a tap in the yard. And, and it was so seismic, you know, the change from living in London as we had been, you know, and, and leading big social life and all those things. So it changed everything. And, and you can't, go back um that's the thing we went back to London we were there for two years um and I carried on uh, working with journalists I was employed by a Swedish university who were working out there already and so I carried on going back and forth um but we came back to London and um it was plain that you know we weren't just going to pick up the reins of what we've been doing so uh, we thought about what we would do and uh, we both love France and I did French at uni and we thought, why don't we go and uh, buy a house in France and live there for a bit? So we did. And uh, we looked and looked and it was hard to find uh, what we wanted. But after six months, uh, I was shown the house that we bought and said immediately, yeah, this is it. And so we were there for, oh gosh, seven years, I think. And are you still living there or are you back in England? No, no, no. We came back after Brexit. We, after the vote, uh, we were horrified. And, um, and by that stage, 
we had grandchildren and my parents were very elderly and uh, we needed to be here. So we moved back to the UK and uh, and here we are. Uh, we're in West Sussex, so that's on the south coast, about 40 minutes from Brighton. Well, that sounds like a beautiful area too. Yeah, it's lovely. But I bet the lifestyle is quite different from living in France. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is, but we're really enjoying it. Well, let's talk about your novels, because while you were a journalist, did you dream of writing books or did this happen while you were living in Sri Lanka? Yeah, it was. And it was because, you know, as a, as a reporter, I loved being a journalist. I absolutely loved it. You know, it was such a fantastic job, but it was full on, absolutely full. I mean, you know, crazy hours, etc. And I had a family. I had, a, you know, two children. So there was no time. There was no space in my life for doing anything other than what I was doing. <laughs> Barely that, really. So um, I had to wait. And I'm an avid reader. It's my passion. And um, I've read, oh, God, since I was about four, I think. I love reading. Uh, I can't imagine a day without reading a book. So I had that as my safety valve, if you like. But um, But when we went to Sri Lanka... I missed writing uh, because I wrote every day as a reporter. And uh, and I thought I had this voice in my head, dear Jean, the widow, um, and she was chatting away. And it was interesting because I, there were whole sort of, you know, sentences and uh, she was sort of, you know, she was there. And I thought, I'm going to give this a try. So I, I did. I uh, sat down at my laptop and I wrote nine chapters, the first nine chapters and the end, and then put it in a drawer, <laughs> like you do for a couple of years, until I got to France, actually. Um, but that was the beginning. And it was having that space in my head and uh, the hours that I would need um, to do it. And I enjoyed it. Couldn't quite, you know, see myself finishing it. I'd never written anything much longer than two and a half thousand words. So, uh, you know, a thriller is 80,000. So it's a big ask. And um, I had to unlearn a lot of, you know, journalistic ticks that I had. Yeah, so that's where it started. Um, but no, it wasn't something that I had been planning forever. It was a, a lovely happenstance, really. Yeah, it's often when we stop, completely stand still, and in your case, switching from extremely different environments, Sri Lanka, London, and then to France, that's when our minds tend to switch off. And one way that I can describe this is when you're baking and you put the flour and everything in the sieve and you're sifting through, and quite often there's bits of wheat that are left at the top of the sieve, right? They don't go through. And I feel like those little bits of wheat are like the gems that are left behind in our mind after we've switched off. It's a bit like clearing the clutter in your brain. And we're left with these elements of ideas. I find it fascinating. Absolutely. And I, and I think that, you know, as a journalist, I've been stockpiling characters uh, all my working life because... It's the people that I met, um, you know, the, the range of people I met as a news reporter, you know, people, ordinary people, people who'd had terrible things happen to them, you know, parents of murdered children, people who'd had wonderful things happen to them. You know, there, there were quotes that stayed with me. Um, so when 
I finally <laughs> sat down and had a go. I had the characters, I had people that I could call on, um, you know, just they're not all fully formed, but, you know, bits of people and the sort of things they would say. So, yeah, so I suppose, and, you know, psychological thrillers, it's, you know, extraordinary things happening to ordinary people. Well, that's news, isn't it? That's what I've been doing for 30 years. And that's a great segue into my next question. In an article for the Calgary Herald dated January 25, 2019, you said of Kate Waters, a reporter and a character in your previous books, quote, she's a good journalist, she doesn't leave without a fight, end quote. Would you say this is a crucial proponent of reporting? Oh, goodness. They made it sound like she was going to punch somebody. Um, what I meant was she's persistent. Um, what I was saying was that she wasn't a big character in the first book when I first started writing. It was all about Jean and Glenn. It was a marriage with secrets. But I needed someone for Jean to talk to. Um, so it wasn't all from her voice. And uh, so I invented Kate. And she just kind of grew and, you know, got her own chapters. and. It really helped the book. And I loved writing her. Um, you know, it was like coming home. But she didn't leave after the widow. And I was saying to the journalist on the Calgary Herald that she's a good journalist. You know, she sticks with it. She sticks with the story. So that's what I meant. And I, yeah, I do think it's so important, you know, to be persistent, to ask another question, to keep going, because sometimes it takes a long time to get the interview that you're after or to get to the truth of something. So yeah, yeah, got to have stamina. Yes, you do. And that's similar when writers want to know about their characters, right? They're researching their characters so they know how they will react in certain situations. It is. Yes, it is. Uh, although I have to confess that I don't write detailed biographies for each of my characters um I like to learn things as I go along as well you know I don't sit there thinking do they like cheese do they eat broccoli you know what I mean it's that I don't go into that sort of detail some detail but I do like I do like people to unfold like a good friendship exactly yes that's a very good uh, a very good uh, description of it yeah of course they're not all my friends yeah <laughs> Some of them I really wouldn't want to be my friends, but uh, no, but you do come to know and seeing them through the eyes of other characters as well is very revealing. I mean, it, it does get me into terrible trouble because I, I didn't know what colour hair Jean had when I put it in because I, I did know in my head I knew, but I hadn't written it. And um, so I had to um, you know, go back and um, colour in a bit. And speaking about characters, your latest novel, Local Gone Missing, is the story of the inhabitants of Ebbing, a small seaside town in England. On the surface, they seem quite ordinary, but after a man disappears and two teenagers overdose, you begin peeling back layers of the characters of Ebbing to reveal secrets and lies. Local Gone Missing is written from multiple points of view, which allows you to delve deeply into the machinations of the town and the characters, I found that you often draw from news articles for your story. Was Local Gone Missing along those lines or born entirely from your imagination? Um, not so much a news story. I We moved to the seaside. So 
everything was fresh to me because I've never lived by the sea before or in a small town like this. Um, so that was fascinating in itself. So I was sort of, you know, observing, I was looking and listening and uh, trying to anyway in the lockdown. This time I kind of, I had a location, which to be honest, um, you know, Thailand in um, Bangkok in, in the suspects, but they don't play a huge role the first two um it was much more about the characters so I did have a a location this time which was lovely I've drawn a map of Ebbing yep that's a map (laughs) (laughs) it's slightly sad slightly um slightly nursery school but um yeah so I did that but I noticed on the local forum, um, you know, the the neighbourhood forum, WhatsApp type groups, that there was tension uh, about weekenders, people buying up uh, property around here and in other parts, you know, um, along the coast, Londoners coming, spending money, turning these dilapidated old bungalows into clapboard houses with, you know, floor to ceiling windows that look amazing but are totally beyond um, the range, uh, the financial range of anyone local and also are left empty for weeks at a time. And it changes, you know, how the town feels. I know from my reporting days that small things can get out of proportion. So there was that. And I like the idea of Elise, my detective, being at a crossroads in her life she has had breast cancer and um, very ambitious murder detective. And suddenly she's kind of laid low. Her long-term partner has left. You know, she's sort of left wondering, can I ever be the woman that I was? So I kind of brought all those things together. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? Brought them all together and sort of, you know, a soup of uh, ideas. And gradually I let it unfold and I, I loved writing D, the cleaner, because I had insiders and outsiders. So I needed an insider. And who better than a cleaner? You know, she sees everything and is that sort of invisible presence in your home, hoovering away and whatever. But no, sees your bills, sees your, you know, drugs, sees everything. Including, without giving any spoilers away, what's in your bedside drawer? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Everyone will have to read the book to figure out what we're talking about. Yeah. And like you, Fiona, I live in a small town. And we also have the email groups that go back and forth about what's going on in town. I actually had to disconnect from it because I think too many people have too much time on their hands. And it can be something, you know, really small, like somebody parked badly. And you think, oh, is it worth getting upset about that? But it will, and it, you know, and then starts this sort of conversation uh, with other people saying, yes, and, you know, and somebody part like that where I live. And it's, uh, it can ramp things up, which is great for me as a thriller writer. That's what I want. Oh, yeah. I bet you find lots of stuff. The comments that jump out at me on those sites are mountain lion seen in this area. And of course, it's always my neighborhood. <laughs> So I'm racing to get all the animals inside. So in that sense, it has its worth, I guess. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, we don't have anything. Nothing as exciting as that. No. Oh, mountain lions. Now you're talking. And do you have a favorite character in Local Gone Missing? 
I love Ronnie. Uh, she is a nosy neighbour. I like a bit of humour in a thriller because, you know, I, I don't want my books to be one note, you know, all about suspense. And people aren't tense all the time. People do crack jokes. And, um, yeah, I love, I do love Ronnie. In fact, in fact, I nicked her from a book that I started and didn't finish. So um, she has survived. Well, I'm sure she's thrilled about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she is, yes. <laughs> yeah, she's probably waiting in the wings to be in the next novel now. When I've spoken with other journalists who are now writing novels and asked them what has been difficult for them regarding the transition into different writing styles, the common denominator seems to be that it's very difficult, as you said earlier, going from writing a 2,500-word essay to an 80,000-word novel. How has your background in journalism carried over to your fiction writing? Do you ever find yourself veering more into the facts rather than the fiction? Well, I think I, I had to unlearn quite a lot. Um, you know, as a reporter, you write short, you tell the whole story in the first paragraph. That's not great for a thriller. <laughs> so I had to learn the drip, drip, drip. And I've talked to a couple of other writers about this, that you have to give yourself permission to invent. So, you know, you're writing, you're thinking, oh, gosh, you know, that, mm, that couldn't happen. But, yeah, it can because you can make it up. But I do find making things up very hard. Very, I'd much rather be rooted in reality and, you know, observing real people and, you know, making it real. Um, you know, I don't write science fiction or fantasy, so they're brilliant at inventing. But to be honest, you don't need to invent when you've been... When you've, um, been reporting on on uh, on stories for all that time there are always you know bits that I can rely on and you just have to keep going till you get to 80,000 words um, I used to, the first one I used to watch the word count go up word by word at the bottom of the screen I know it was terrible um, but what happened was I was given a deadline so I got to 10,000 words and thought I've got nothing else to say and uh, there was a competition where you had to send in 10,000 words. So I thought, well, I'll send it and see, you know, if there's any response. And I was shortlisted. It was a competition, search for a bestseller. So that was great, except that I had to write the other 70,000 words in six months. So uh, I did because they said I had to. And um, they gave me a date on which to submit. So that was my saving grace, I think. I needed somebody to say, you've got to do it, and by this date. And, uh, and I did. Yes, deadlines have a way of keeping you in the chair, that's for sure. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about books. Is there a book in particular you'd like to see more people reading, apart from your own? Oh, gosh, so many. I think, um, have, you ever re have you read Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth Stout? No, not yet. Did you love it? Oh, let me press it into your hands. It's fantastic. It is fantastic. I absolutely love it. And then the, the follow-up is called Olive Again. It's a wonderful set of observations about a very curmudgeonly, grumpy woman called Olive Kittredge. But it's so beautifully written. I would love you to read it. Uh, everybody. I gave it to everybody after I'd read it. Uh, you know, everybody who... Um, was getting a present 
had Olive Kittredge. And in fact, they made a, a mini-series out of it with Frances McDormand, who was terrific. She was born to play Olive. It was, it was wonderful. You've talked me into it. And what book are you currently reading? Uh, I've just finished Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, which is riding high in the charts and is great. Really wonderful lead character, Elizabeth Sott. 19, it's a bit Mad Men. It's 1950s uh, misogyny and this fantastic woman at the heart of it. Lots of lessons from it, I think. And I'm just at the moment reading The Beekeeper of Aleppo, which is, uh, oh, goodness, not many laughs. It's about people, refugees from Syria, from the Syrian war. But it's a terrific book. Uh, it's fiction. Um, in that, I think the story is fiction, but obviously it's um, grounded very much in uh, in what's happening there. I'm reading that for my book group. And I enjoyed your book, Local Gone Missing. And hopefully we haven't given away spoilers. I do my best not to do that, as a lot of people want to hear their favourite authors talk about the books, but they don't want spoilers. So we try in the Bookshop podcast not to give anything away. It's so tricky. It's so hard to do, you know, meaningfully, to be honest. It's better to kind of let them, let the reader see it unfold for themselves. Exactly. I agree. Fiona, thank you for being a guest on the Bookshop podcast. It's been lovely chatting. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I wish you all the best with Local Gone Missing. And for our listeners, I will leave links to the books we've talked about, including Local Gone Missing, in the show notes. Thank you. It's been lovely. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to my conversation with Fiona Barton, the New York Times bestselling author of The Widow, The Child, The Suspect, and her latest novel, Local Gone Missing. Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Mandy Jackson Beverly. And check out my website at mandyjacksonbeverly.com. And if you'd like to contribute to the coffee fund, Go to thebookshoppodcast.brassprout.com, click on the little orange heart in the right-hand corner of the page, and you can donate using PayPal. Your contributions support the production and editing costs of the show. For information regarding sponsoring an episode, email thebookshoppodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly.